with you. My family and I have done a lot of traveling this summer, and it's always good to be back home with our church family. It's good to see some special guests here. Pastor Taylor, good to see you here. If you who know Pastor Taylor, make sure you say hi to him. I know he came not to just be seen. He came to love and be loved. So make sure you say hi. See some other folks here, unexpected guests, friends, from other places. What a joy to be here in God's house. I don't know about you, but I struggle sometimes with getting things finished. Any of you struggle with that? Anybody want to admit that it's sometimes more interesting to begin a project than to end one? Anyone want to confess today? I know we didn't come to a Catholic Mass to have confessional, but it's okay. We can, yeah, there's two or three. The majority of you are pretty good at finishing things, it looks like then. But if we were being honest, many of us struggle with getting things done. In fact, scientists, especially in the computer science realm, have developed a theory called the 90-90 rule goes something like this. It takes 90% of your time, okay, to get 90% done. All right, duh. And it takes another 90% of your time to get the last 10% done. Now, some of you who can deal with math are saying, Eddie, what are you talking about? That's 180%. But the reality is that the last 10% are, is often the most intimidating and most challenging part of a project. It might look something like this. If you were to graph it on a, on a page, the things that we haven't started, the things that we are working on, and the things that we're almost done. According to Pedro Arantes, a computer engineer, there are two major reasons that we have so many of our projects in the almost done stage. Number one, when we're planning for a project, we often don't calculate for unexpected turns of events. We say, well, if everything goes as it should, I should be able to get it done by this time. And second, Frankly, the last 10% of the effort is the hard part. It's the part that our brain, when it sees what has to be done, kind of turns off and says, man, I'd rather do anything but that. Frankly, we do the things we like to do. And the last 10%, the part that will push us across from the almost done line to the done line is the hard stuff, the boring stuff, the stuff we don't enjoy. Interesting, history demonstrates how many projects have been left almost done. Let me show you a few. First one I want to talk about is the Last Supper, the Last Supper painting, Michelangelo's famous or, excuse me, Leandro, Leonardo da Vinci, sorry, someone named Leandro caught me on that one. Leonardo da Vinci's 
Last Supper. It's interesting, recent years, the artists have gone and they've investigated this piece of art. What's happened over years is that people have come and touched up this piece of art. But if you get down to the very bottom, as they did some imaging, they found out that Leonardo da Vinci never truly finished this painting. In fact, you can see here that there's a ceiling. In the original art, um, people that are uh, proficient in art say the ceiling was never there. He got bored at that point. He enjoyed drawing the disciples. He enjoyed putting the food on the table. But when it came to the roof, it never was finished. Another example from history is Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. You probably read this in uh, Academy of High School English. It's interesting that Chaucer actually never finished his Canterbury Tales. He had many more that he wanted to put out there. But somewhere in his life, he stopped. And they said, well, we're going to publish it anyway. So, when you read those Canterbury Tales, realize that there were many others that he had planned to put. Many others that were almost finished. And then we have one of the most famous basilicas in all of the world, Barcelona, Spain, Sagrada Familia Basilica. Any of you have seen that? It's a big, tall basilica. It was originally constructed, the construction started in 1882. And as you can see in this image, it's still under construction today, some 141 years later. Some of us may say, yeah, look at me. God's still working on me. I'm 40, 50, 60, 80, 141 years they've been working on this building. God's still working on all of us, amen? 141 years. And interestingly, it wasn't until the last 10 years or so that they finally got a building permit for this project. What do you know? Finally got a building project. And the building permit cost them over a million dollars to secure from the government. The prognosis is that in a few more years, maybe by the year 2032, they'll have a special comm commemoration where all of it will be done. They're, they're gearing up. 150 years, then we'll be done. But not yet. Right now, it's almost finished. You know, social scientists have come up with a term that talks about this almost finished phenomenon. It's called completion anxiety. Completion anxiety is defined as the fear that you will not be able to complete a task or the worry that you will not perform well enough to meet the standards set by others. And so somewhere in the process, we check out. Somewhere in the process, we say, well, eh, almost as good enough. I'm not going to worry about finishing it. So everywhere around us, we see a column almost finished. Now, I do want to put a commercial 
for those things that we shouldn't finish. Here's a couple examples for you. Perhaps you're out driving late at night and you get sleepy. Maybe you shouldn't finish your trip to that destination. Maybe you should check in early. Maybe you should have an almost finished project. And here's another one. What about that plate of food? How many of you grew up with the notion that you had to finish everything on your plate? How many of you are in that camp? Yeah, about half of us grew up with the idea, you got to finish it all. Well, probably, if we were being honest, those of us who are in that camp have struggled with things that those who aren't in that camp haven't, because we have to finish that plate no matter what's on it. You know, after all, there's some poor child somewhere in some other country that's going to benefit or lose out on a benefit or some kind of notion if we don't finish our plate of food. I don't know. My wife is still teaching me this one. In fact, in recent years, she said, Eddie, you know you don't have to finish every bite. She's nodding. It's true. And our kids are on her team, not mine, so praise the Lord, perhaps their middle line won't be as challenged as mine. Now, all joking aside, today we're going to be exploring one of the most consequential almost of all of Scripture. In the eighth in this series, it's our penultimate, we have one more to go, we are going to be looking at the testimony of Paul before Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice. But before we get into that story, I want to break down and look at some of these folks that we're going to be talking about. First, let's look at Festus. Festus was the fifth procurator of Judea from approximately 59 to 62 AD. He succeeded Felix, and he, was, he is viewed by historians as more fair then Felix, who came before him, and Albinus, who succeeded him. So that's Festus. Next, I want to look at Herod Agrippa. We'll be talking about him a little bit more later. He was the king of the Chalces from 50 CE, and he was also the tetrarch of Batatania and Trachonitis thereafter. He's the son of Agrippa I, who was the one who hist historically is uh, considered the one who killed James and imprisoned Peter. Next slide. He's the last of all the Herods, okay? And he's the brother of Bernice, Miriam. Let's go back one more, excuse me. Uh, he's the brother of Miriam and Bernice, as well as Drusilla, or Drusilla, who married Felix. So notice who his sister is. Now we can go back to Bernice. I know Bernice, she's been, she has that hair. She wants to come out and talk to us. That's, a, that's an indication that curlers existed back even then. Look at that hair. Bernice is the daughter of Herod Agrippa I and was the sister of Herod Agrippa II. Notice that relationship between Agrippa and Bernice. What are they? Brother and sister. She was married twice in her early years, first to a man named Marcus, and second to her uncle, who was also called Herod. And later, 
when her uncle or husband died, she went to live with her brother. But their relationship was not a very good one. And to spare younger ears, let's just say that it wasn't viewed well, the kind of relationship they were having. And so to take eyes off herself, she got herself married again. And this time, she went and she connected with a man um, that uh, was named Polymon. Polymon was a priest king of Cilicia. And that, that marriage, even though she made him into a Jew, she said, you're going to have to come and become like us. It didn't last. And within just very few years, she was back with her brother in a relationship that was viewed by everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, as very inappropriate. Now I want to turn, after we've known a little bit about these people, to Scripture. So turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 25. We'll be in Acts 25 and 26 the majority of our time together this morning. As you turn there, let's, let's pray for God's Spirit to guide us in His Word. Father in heaven, we turn to your word, asking that your spirit would guide us. May we not only understand clearly what your word is saying, but we, may we take it to heart so that we will leave this place more committed to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here we find uh, Paul has gone before, um, he's gone before Festus, and Festus doesn't know what to do with him. Festus wonders, what do I do with a guy who doesn't seem to have anything that I can truly charge him for? He's been a disruptor, he's caused trouble, but there's nothing criminal that I can peg on him. It got even more complicated when Paul says, said, I want to go before Caesar. Verse 10 of Acts 25, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For I am an offender, for if I am an offender, or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Then came a guest, actually two guests, Agrippa and Bernice. They came to Caesarea where Paul was imprisoned. They came and they greeted Festus, it says in verse 13. And Festus told them about the case that Paul had. He said, I have this man, he's disrupted the Jews, but I don't know what to do with him. And so they said, hey, we want to see him too. And that's what we find in Acts 25 and verse 22. Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Next scripture says, tomorrow, says, said Festus, you shall hear him. So the very next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and great circumstance and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul 
was brought in. Festus then went to explain once again to Agrippa and Bernice what the Jews were up to, that they had sought to condemn Paul to death. But because Paul had appealed to Caesar, Festus had concluded he would send Paul to him. The trouble was that Festus didn't know what to write on the documents that he sent. He says, I have nothing to put in these documents. Let's look at now Acts 26, verses 9 and 10. Acts 26, verses 9 and 10. Maybe a couple slides back. They asked Paul to speak. And Paul said, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. This also I did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul talks about that not only did he go out, not only did he persecute, not only did he go to one location, but he went to many places. And that he was there, not only persecuting, but voting, taking his pebble. That's how they did it back then. One, either a black or a white pebble. They would throw in their pebble and say, I cast a yes or a no vote. Perhaps we should do that in our board meetings. What do you think, Pastor? Black and white pebbles? That's the way they did it. And he cast his vote. Yes, they should receive the death penalty. Next text. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even into foreign cities. This is the third time that Paul gives his testimony there in the book of Acts. But there are three new things that we find here that we don't have anywhere else. Number one, he voted for the death penalty. Number two, he compelled the Christians to blaspheme their God. And number three, he was enraged to the point of insanity. These things all weighed on Paul. As he stood there in that auditorium, he realized that he had made mistakes, that he had been guided by the wrong spirit. But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? Praise God. Let's continue in the narrative now in verse 13. At midday, O king, Along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Here's some new things that we hadn't seen before either in looking at Paul's testimony. First, the, the light was brighter than the noon sun. Number two, this is the first time that we learned that, and I'm going to offend just about everyone here, that the language of heaven is not Portuguese. It's not Spanish. It's not even English. Seemingly, the language of heaven is Hebrew. Nobody liked that one. 
the language of heaven. One that we will always argue about until we get there, amen. Jesus added, it's hard for you, Paul, to kick against the goads. Let's look at what a goad was. An ox goad, this is what we think it might have looked like. It was used by those who were pushing, making oxes go down the road. They took it and they would spike it into the back legs of the ox to keep them going. And as the ox would kick, it would make the goad go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, kicking against the goads. Obviously, Paul had an inner struggle at this point. He was kicking, pushing, fighting, straining against the urgings of the Holy Spirit. To an outsider looking at Paul, we might have said that he was on some kind of malicious campaign, that he was led in a, in a terrible way. We might have condemned him. We might have said, Paul, he's a terrible man. But something was happening inside of him. His encounter on the road of Damascus sheds light on what was really happening. The Holy Spirit was working inside of Paul. He was wooing. He was urging. He was prodding Paul. Do you know anybody who's behaved badly recently? Do you have someone in your life that perhaps doesn't act in the most Christ-like way? Could it be that there's an inner struggle right now happening in their life? Could it be that there's a prodding of the Holy Spirit? And could it be that we have the opportunity, instead of getting upset, instead of being angry, instead of fighting back or complaining to others, to pray for that person, to realize that there's something going on inside of them right now that they may be resisting. The Holy Spirit is working in the most unpromising people. Paul is a testimony for that. Perhaps you're the one that's fighting right now. Perhaps you're the one that's behaved badly. And you identify with Paul's experience. But inside your heart, the Holy Spirit is working. He's speaking to you even right now. He's urging you to give whatever it is in the way of him to him. Paul was not only invited to give his life, but he was called to minister. Acts chapter 26, verses 15 and 16. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, don't stay in the ground. Don't stay where you fell, arise. That's the invitation that Christ gives to any of us who have fallen. Rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. Have you fallen today? 
Did you fall this past week? God's message to you is, stand up, arise. I have something for you to do, to be a minister, to be a witness, to share what God has done in your life, and to share what He will show you in the future. There's a future for you. There's a hope for you. There's an encouragement for you. God has something for you. God had something for Paul. And not only will God take you, but God will deliver you. Continues Jesus talking to Paul in verse 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The irony is rich. Paul, the persecutor, would be persecuted, but he wouldn't be left without a deliverer. Are you going through something today? Do you feel the persecution coming? Is it right now on you? There is a deliverer, a promised one. And as certain as the promise that God has called you to minister, he will deliver you. You may be facing something today that you don't know how to get out of. Christ says, I will deliver you. Reach out to me, stand with me, and I will bring you just what you need. Paul blinded by bigotry and nationalistic pride, and now physically blinded as well, would be sent to open the eyes of both Jews and Gentiles, to turn them from darkness to light, to give them forgiveness for their sins and an inheritance in the kingdom of Jesus. Oh, friends, have you been entangled by the darkness of this world? Perhaps it's a wound that you didn't deserve. Perhaps it's a slight that you shouldn't have received. Perhaps it's a bigotry against a person that does things differently than you wish they would. Whatever it is, God is calling you to turn today from the darkness of the world into his marvelous light. Don't pass by the opportunity to stand and follow him. Continuing on, Paul says in verse 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do the works befitting repentance. For these reasons, because I called them, the Jews seized me in the temple, and they tried to kill me. It was because I was bringing hope, because I was bringing courage, I was bringing repentance, that they tried to kill me. In these words, we hear an echo of what was said by Jesus in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. When the disciples asked him about the signs of his coming, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times nor the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, 
but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. What was prophesied there by Jesus was happening now in the ministry of Paul. Paul continues there in verse 22. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and to great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul Paul there goes and speaks on his favorite subject, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the crucified, Jesus, the resurrected, a light to Jews and Gentiles alike. And that was enough. Enough for Festus to stand up. It says he stood up and he yelled at Paul. Let's see what he said there in verse 24. Paul, you're beside yourself. Paul, much learning is driving you mad. The same word that Paul used to describe himself pre-conversion, Festus now uses to describe him post You are going mad. Is it okay to be mad for the Lord sometimes? Is it okay to be passionate for Jesus? Is it okay to be a slave to the cross? Yes, it is. Paul responds, and we find that in the next verse. Paul says, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. And then he pivots, looking past Festus to Agrippa. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention. Since this thing was not done, in a corner, in secret. Then looking King Agrippa right in the eye, he said, King Agrippa, do you believe? Do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And then, in the almost of all almost, Agrippa said, you almost, You almost persuade me to be a Christian. Oh, my friends, what an opportunity there was lost. Almost ready, almost persuaded, almost convicted. And Paul said in response, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Paul stands before Agrippa, a lowly prisoner in chains, but in his conscience, he is free. 
the brother and sister rumored to be in a relationship prohibited by all Jewish as well as pagan laws sit in their royal robes, seemingly free and successful. But inside, they're trapped. Inside, they're shackled by addiction, by dishonesty and corruption. I would that you would become like me, Paul says, thinking back of the freedoms of travel and wealth he once enjoyed. Paul concludes that his life in the service of Jesus is freer than anything he had ever before. Yes, the chains of a prisoner bind him, but inside he's unshackled. His master had once said it in this way, we find it in John 8, 36. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. So the question comes, why was Agrippa not completely persuaded? Why was he almost persuaded? Could it have been the people around him, perhaps? Bernice, as she sat next to him, his immoral, sinful companion, Perhaps he realized that if he went all the way with Jesus, he would have to give up her. Perhaps he followed in the example of Adam, who wouldn't give up the possibility of losing Eve, but instead ate that fruit to keep her. Maybe it was Festus, a man's man, a no-nonsense man, a man who thought Paul was crazy. If, if I take my stand, Agrippa might have thought, He'll think I'm crazy too. Nah, I don't want to do that. And then in front of him stood Paul, a strong man, at least inside, a noble man, a man of wisdom and character, but a man shackled. Perhaps Agrippa said, well, if I become a Christian, I may end up shackled too. I can't have that. I'll lose everything I've worked for. Charles Spurgeon, in speaking about this situation, says, Oh, that men were wise enough to see that the suffering for Christ is honor, the loss for truth is gain, that the truest dignity rests in wearing the chain upon the arm rather than endure the chain upon the soul. famed evangelist Dwight Moody called it the biggest mistake he had ever made. On October 8, 1871, he got up to speak in Chicago's Farwell Hall. It was a standing room only crowd. They counted the numbers. It was about 2,500 people. And he sto stood up, he opened the Bible, and he looked at Matthew chapter 27 and verse 22. What then shall I do with Jesus, Pilate said. What shall I do with Jesus, which they call the Christ? The crowd listened. The crowd was engaged, and Moody feeling the sense in the room, made a call. 
He challenged the audience to take a week to weigh the claims of Christ. Take one week and come back and make your decision. He promised that in a week he would be there in the same room, in the same place, and they could commit their life to Christ. As the meeting ended, he invited the evangelist Ira Sankey, as I invite our team up at this time. And they sang the song, Today the Savior Calls. Sankey recalls the evening. By the time I had reached the third verse, which says, Today the Savior calls for refuge fly. The storm of justice falls and death is nigh. My voice was drowned out by the loud noise of the fire engines rushing past the hall and the tolling of bell after bell. It was the Chicago fire. Moody would later describe the one-week challenge in this meeting as the biggest mistake he'd ever made. He often wondered how many of those 2,500 had lost their life in that fire. He later said, I want to tell you the one lesson I learned that night. That is, I want to tell you that when I have the opportunity to preach, I press Christ upon the people, then and there, and I try to bring them to a decision on the spot. I would rather have that right hand cut off than to give an audience now a week or even a day to decide what to do with Jesus. So, it's with Moody's example that today I want to offer you Jesus. There's going to be three invitations today. As we stand together and sing this song, I want to invite the first group of people. Perhaps there's somebody, let's stand together. Perhaps there's somebody in this room that has never publicly proclaimed their allegiance to Jesus. They've been almost persuaded. Maybe that's you. If you've never given your life fully to Jesus, never been baptized into his love and his truth, step forward at this time, would you? This is your invitation as we sing this first stanza. Today's your day to say, almost is not good enough. I'm going all the way. Come forward if that is the desire of your heart.
there's someone else. Perhaps there's someone that's holding on to something that they need to give up. Yes, once they've committed their life to Jesus, but there's something they've been struggling with, something that's gotten in the way of that connection. Today's a day to say no more almost. Today's a day to say all the way. If you want to come forward at this time and to tell Jesus, I'm giving you the thing that you want, I invite you as we sing stanza two to move forward and join us here. Give your life in all-out commitment to ministry. Perhaps there's someone here that says, I want to be a missionary. I want to be in God's service 100%. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a pastor. I want to give my life 100% to Jesus. If there's someone sensing that call today, I would be amiss if I didn't invite you too to join Paul as one who brings light to those in darkness, hope to those in discouragement. Young person, is it you? Older person, could it be you too? Come forward as we sing the third stanza.
made it clear to us that the bondage that you give us is freedom. Your service is a song, Lord. Oh, Lord, we give our lives to you once again. We dedicate our souls, our bodies, our everything to you. No more almost, Lord. All the way we go. Because we know that held in your keeping, all our weakness will be strong. Thank you, Lord, for coming and speaking to us today. May we leave this place more determined to give you everything, every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.